Well, good morning, church, and good morning, friends and family and visitors. Uh, welcome to Community Bible Church, as well as those of you uh, who are tuning in this morning via live stream. Uh, we know Doug and Kim are in Pennsylvania this morning, and there are probably others. If you would, begin turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. Our text today is actually 44 through 56, but we're going to initially look at 44 through 49, and then we'll pick up 50 through 56 uh, a little bit later. As you're turning, I should say that if you were paying attention to the songs that we just sang, and if you were paying attention to Austin's uh, encouragements and exhortations and the passages that he read, we could go straight to communion and be done today. Because everything that needs to be said about today's text has been summed up nicely in what has already happened this morning. But my responsibility today is to um, speak about these passages, and hopefully in doing so, the Lord has for some, or maybe all of us, uh, some particular encouragement or exhortation or instruction, or perhaps his intent today is to bolster up our faith by the proclamation and hearing of his word. So I'm confident that while the material has been covered already, that our time will not be fruitless uh, today as we uh, delve into God's word. So, starting in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Join me, if you would, in just a moment of prayer. Father, as we consider uh, the text that you moved Luke to record uh, for us today, we pray that your spirit would be at work uh, to bring to light the soul-saving, sanctifying truth of your word. Illuminate our hearts. Change us uh, for the things that we will see and hear today 
as we gaze upon uh, the last and final hours of Christ on the cross and all that was accomplished uh, as he hung there. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All of the Luke uh, gospel has been the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke diligently compiled the gospel for his patron, Theophilus, in order that Theophilus might have certainty about the things he had been taught. Luke's careful investigation of the life of Jesus, the gathering of eyewitness reports, the collating of all this information into an intentional Holy Spirit-guided gospel of the life of Jesus is what we possess today. Luke tells us of Jesus from his conception, through his childhood, to the inauguration of his public ministry, to him selecting and calling disciples to himself, to public displays of his power to heal, to raise the dead, to forgive sins, to transform the lives of seemingly unredeemable people, to the proclamation of his kingdom, to the attacks from the religious leaders of Israel, to the plots to murder him, to the convoluted legal arguments made against him, and finally, the unmerited, unjust exchange of his innocent life for the life of a seditious rebel and murderer. Brian has commented in some of our discussions about this gospel that from the birth of Jesus, there was a continual downward spiral of suffering, rejection, humiliation, and finally, in today's text, death. When I was assigned this passage to preach, I spent several weeks deeply troubled by the prospect of standing before you here this morning. There were two reasons for this. The first was my keen sense of my inadequacy to stand in front of this church and preach about the most important event in the history of the universe. The second reason was because I knew that it was my sin that put him on that cross. To speak about Jesus on the cross was to feel the weight of my sin afresh every time I sat down to work on this sermon. To preach about the death of Jesus Christ was to see myself in the murderous hypocrisy of the Pharisees and to see how much like Pilate I have been in times when I turned from the truth in order to please people. To preach this sermon meant I had to experience the contrary emotions of unalterable guilt for my sin that put Jesus on that cross alongside my inexpressible joy in what the cross accomplished for a sinner like me. Last week, Brian's message showed us that even in the last hours of his death, Jesus did not abandon his mission, but remain obedient to the Father. 
Brian's message was a picture of the mercy and grace of God being poured out by God through Jesus to those who rejected him, to those who mocked him, to those who nailed him to the cross, and finally to the guilty, condemned criminal hanging on a cross next to him when he said, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our first focus this morning is on three events that Luke records for us. These three events were supernatural and miraculous. After we examine these events, we will look at what happened to the body of Jesus between the time of his death and the start of Passover. So if I had a main point today, I think that my main point would be to paraphrase what Joseph uh, told his brothers. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. So the first miracle that we see in this text is darkness. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple, even as we sang a minute ago, was torn in two. As, he, as Jesus hung on that cross, dying, an unusual and unexpected darkness descended upon Jerusalem. From noon until 3 p.m., the sun could not light the scene unfolding on Golgotha. It was not a solar eclipse. Eclipses last minutes, not hours. And this was not an unusually overcast day. This was a palpable, frightening darkness appropriate to what was happening on that cross. This darkness was so unusual that Tertullian comments on it being recorded in Roman archives, and both Origen and Eusebius quote the historian Phlegon, who described an extraordinary darkness connected to the crucifixion. This darkness is a historical fact. And as real as it was, it was also symbolic. In the garden in Luke 22, Jesus said to those who came to arrest him, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour... And the power of darkness are yours. Evil is often depicted by darkness. Think of all the scary movies you may have seen that Hollywood's produced. They are almost all dark because they depict evil. What was happening to Jesus as he hung on the cross is the greatest evil that has ever occurred or will ever occur in the universe. The evil was that every sin that 
I have done in the past, the rest of them that I will do in the future, and even perhaps the sin that I will commit as I take my last breath, all the evil that I have done against my God, every act of disobedience, every wicked thought, every vile intention, every selfish attitude, every lie, every lust, every bit of anger, all my hate, my greed, my covetousness, my foolish pride, my arrogance, my self-centered impatience, my slanderous words, my backbiting, all the harm and malice that I have ever committed was laid on him as he hung there in unimaginable agony. And not only was the total measure of all of Tom's sins laid on Jesus that day, but so were yours, and yours, and yours, and yours. As our sins were imputed to the innocent Lamb of God, darkness fell on the scene. You and I may occasionally falter under the weight of our own sin, but it is beyond comprehension that the sins of the world were being accounted to him. The man who did not sin was experiencing the crushing weight of the totality of humanity's sin. And as my sin was laid on him, as he became sin for me, the Father turned away from his beloved Son. Darkness fell. God's judgment was being poured out. The day of the Lord, the day of his holy, just, righteous wrath, that crushing, inescapable judgment that I deserved was being visited on the only Son of Man who did not deserve it. The sinless one was being made sin so guilty sinners could be made guiltless. That is why darkness fell. It was if the heavens pulled a curtain over the obscenity and the injustice of the scene unfolding on Calvary. The sins of the guilty falling on the guiltless Lamb of God was a sight from which even the Son wanted to hide. The miracle that was happening was that God was allowing His Son to become the Lamb of God. John understood when he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As my sin was placed on him, his blood was atoning for me. Jesus was taking away my sin as that heavy darkness during the brightest, hottest time of day hovered over Jerusalem. Our schedule this morning really doesn't permit us to unpack all the improbable depths of what I just said. Our Lord is not perpetually hanging on a cross as some depict him. He's not there anymore. 
But what he accomplished on that cross, his redemptive work on Calvary is eternal. We will forever, we will forever remember the cross because it is where God's power and wisdom were put on display to those who are being called to salvation. Because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the Father, even to the point of enduring a shameful death on the cross, God's glory and wisdom has been revealed to all creation. No, the redeemed will never cease to remember with great joy the glorious cross of Christ. The second miracle of the day was the tearing of the curtain inside the temple. In the sunless gloom of that afternoon, a second miracle happened. While Jesus hung on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, the hand of God was at work inside the temple. Inside the temple, priests were worshiping. It was their job. In addition, preparations were underway for the observation of Passover. Deep inside the temple itself is an area known as the holy place. The holy place is where the priests perform many of their sacred duties, such as replenishing the oil for the golden lampstead and offering holy incense on the altar of prayer. Within the holy place, there's another space called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. It was strictly off limits. Inside the most holy place stood the Ark of the Covenant. There, once a year, the mercy seat was sprinkled with the sacrificial blood of the covenant to make atonement for the people of God. Only the high priest of Israel could enter this place. And he could only enter it once a year on the Day of Atonement. This was the place God had chosen to manifest his holy presence on sinful earth. The curtain that surrounded it was designed by God. It was not for his protection, but for the protection of sinful man. For sinful man to behold God in his holiness was to die. The reason the high priest was permitted to enter was to make atonement for the people. Once a year, he would bring the blood of a pure sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And even though it was ordained for the high priest to perform this service, he entered fearing for his own life. Listen to what Philip Ryken says in his commentary on Luke. The thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was a form of protection. It formed a barrier between a holy God and his sinful people. It blocked access as if to say to sinful humanity, this far, but no farther. 
The temple curtain was torn in two when Christ was crucified. To understand how miraculous this was, it is important to know that the curtain was roughly 30 feet wide, 30 feet high, 100 square yards of heavy material. It was not a thin sheet of sheer fabric, but was the width, the thickness of a man's hand, almost an inch. The curtain was also tightly woven with multiple layers of thread. It must have weighed hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds. Thus, it would have been impossible for any person to tear it in two. Consider further the testimony of Matthew and Mark that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. The only way a human could have done this was getting on a 25-foot ladder and hacking away at the curtain with a broad sword. But there would always be priests in the holy place worshiping the Lord night and day. Anyone who tried to tear the curtain to the most holy place would have been seized instantly and then executed for perpetrating a sacrilege. No, the ripping of the veil was something that only God could do and only by his miraculous power. So what did God tearing the curtain in the temple signify? Why did he do it? What Jesus was accomplishing on the cross negated the very purpose of that curtain. Because of the cross, those whose lives are in Christ Jesus are no longer in mortal danger of the wrath of a holy God. His wrath against me, the sinner, was satisfied by Jesus. I was cleansed by the atoning blood, not of a lamb, but of the Lamb of God, of Christ Jesus himself. Tom the sinner is now clothed in the righteousness of my sinless Redeemer. Me, me, the vile, wretched, foul, putrid, hideous rebel, no longer must be stopped by a curtain that stands between me and my God. Why? Because the high priest Jesus was making atonement for me on that cross, not with the blood of a spotless lamb, but with his very own blood. His atonement renders me guiltless. My sin has been removed from me. God remembers my sins no more. Because of Christ, I am clean and sinless. As the hand of God tore that curtain from top to bottom, this sinner, whose life is hid in Christ Jesus, no longer turns in fear, crying out for the mountains to follow me, to hide me from the terrible, holy wrath of God. But instead, instead, I boldly approach the throne of grace with a joyful, longing heart, in the words, 
Abba, Father, on my lips. Time and my lack of skills do not permit me to speak of all that Jesus accomplished on the cross that day. But the priests who were on duty that morning in the temple witnessed the hand of God rending that curtain that separated them from his presence. They comprehended with fear, I'm certain, that they were witnessing a singular event, a miracle. Now, we don't know how they processed it. Uh, we don't know what they did with what they witnessed that day. But in Acts 6-7, Luke states the following. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I like to think that some of those priests who eventually became obedient to the faith were perhaps the ones who were on duty in the temple when the hand of God ripped the dividing curtain in two. The third miracle. And this is a miracle of grace. The text says, Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all his Jesus acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So, who showed up at Golgotha on that day? Well, Jesus was there. Some of his followers were there. Those who were hoping for a spectacle, and these are the kinds of people who show up with a picnic basket at a hanging, I think. Um, the enemies of Jesus who wanted him dead and wanted to make sure he was dead, and those who had a job to do that day. The centurion was there to do a job. He was not there because he wanted to be. He was there because it was his duty to be there. He was a professional officer in a Roman legion. He would have been a tough enough soldier to have been placed over a hundred or more Roman soldiers. He was a leader. He was an example to his men. He was no pushover. Most centurions were plebeians who had risen through the ranks on their own merits. This centurion's duty that day was to make sure Pilate's death sentences were carried out completely. This experienced, hardened man had certainly seen death by crucifixion before. 
it is improbable that he would have been entrusted with this duty without prior experience. From the text, we know the work he directed to perform was performed just as prescribed. Three men were marched to Calvary. Three men were nailed to crosses. Three crosses were raised up and set in their sockets. And three men were going to die that day. That was his duty. And he was going to make sure it went just as it was supposed to. I think we can be confident the centurion had seen and heard it all. Cursing, crying, moans, pleas, rants, accusations, anger, bargaining, bribes, threats, all coming from the condemned people hanging on cruel crosses. These were the very things the curious and the thrill-seekers in the crowd came to see. They delighted in the misery and the, in the actions of those who were dying on crosses. But as he observed the man on the middle cross, as he watched the events of the day unfold, something stirred in his heart. This king of the Jews was not ranting and raving about what was being done to him. He wasn't proclaiming his innocence. He wasn't pleading to be taken down. Instead, he was showing grace and mercy to the crowds, asking God to forgive those who were crucifying him. He was compassionate to his fellow convicts that were hanging there with him. And he made sure from other Gospels that his mother was taken care of and the most amazing thing of all, he died when he chose to die. The text says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last what the centurion witnessed that day caused him to declare the innocence of Christ and praise God. Matthew further reports that he declared, truly, this was the Son of God. At the foot of the cross, this man may well have driven the nails that pinned Jesus. He saw in Jesus that which opened his eyes to what the religious leaders of Israel could not see. This Gentile Roman soldier fulfilled the prophecy of Simeon way back in Luke 32 as he beheld the infant Jesus. And Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. The centurion's eyes were open. Comprehension dawned on him, and he could not help but declare the truth he now knew. Is this not 
incomprehensible grace. The man who well may have still had splatters of Jesus' blood on him was now declaring the core truth of the gospel. Truly, this man is the Son of God. Now we may be tempted to dismiss this account of the centurion's declara- uh, declaration. We may minimize it. Luke doesn't provide us with any more information about him. But I can tell you personally, having had a father who was antagonistic to the gospel, I can tell you that I would have given almost anything to have heard him make such a declaration. I suspect that for many of you here today, there's someone in your life for whom you would feel the same. If you could only hear them say, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. By the time Jesus breathed his last and yielded his spirit to the Father, the excitement of the crowds had withered away. In its place, Luke says, they returned home beating their breast. Why were they in such a state? Perhaps it was watching the humble man on the cross, full of compassion and mercy for those who were tormenting him, that had taken the steam out of their savage excitement, their appetite for a spectacle. The conduct of Jesus on that cross was not natural. He was not scared. He was not angry. He did not breathe threats. He did not protest. He yielded to the will of the Father, and he drank the bitter cup reserved for me. What that crowd witnessed in Jesus left them feeling empty and hopeless. I do not think their breast beating was a sign of godly repentance. But perhaps for some that came later. Finally, those who knew and loved Jesus watched this scene unfold from a distance. While that was agony for them, I think it was also part of the agony that Jesus suffered. How painful it would have been for him to see his suffering reflected in the faces of those who loved him and trusted him. To see their fear, their helplessness, their broken hearts must have been bitter to him. They could not have fully realized on that day that what they were seeing was the love of God for them being poured out in Jesus as his blood dripped from his wounds. The text continues after the death of Christ and tells us that now there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town in Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented 
to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So much can and probably should be said about this text that I just read. Sadly, again, our time doesn't permit it today. Next week, I think Levi may touch, or the next few weeks, Levi Levi may touch on some of the important aspects of Jesus' burial. This morning, it is significant to make the point, the important point, that Jesus was truly dead. Some of you may be aware of some of the people who... uh, who reject Christianity, made the claim that Jesus wasn't actually dead, that he had swooned or fainted, and that he was revived later. Um, in, uh, in some of the other Gospels, which I would encourage you to read the other Gospel accounts of, of these events, um, we know that the Jewish leaders were concerned. They may not have had faith, or hope in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I would say their fear was that Jesus would be resurrected or claimed to be resurrected. And so they too went to Pilate, just like Joseph had done, but they went to Pilate um, asking that he secure the tomb so that the disciples could not come and steal away the body and then claim that Jesus was resurrected. But it's important for us today to understand one thing from these events thus far. Jesus Christ died. The body that Joseph took down off of that cross was not a living body. He was dead. In the other Gospels, accounts, Pilate ordered the legs of the three crucified men to be broken to hasten their deaths. Death by crucifixion was a mixture of shock, exhaustion, and eventual suffocation. To breathe, the crucified person had to push themselves up to relieve the pressure on their diaphragm, on their chest. While pushing against nail-pierced ankles is unthinkable to me, pushing with broken legs is impossible. The Jews wanted the crucified men to die and be taken down from the crosses before Passover. So they requested Pilate to send soldiers to hasten 
They're dying by breaking their legs with iron bars. The soldiers mercilessly shattered the legs of the two men being crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and what flowed from his body was proof to the soldiers that he was no longer living. Joseph, who was a member of the council, went to Pilate to get permission to remove the body of Jesus from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea removed a lifeless body from the cross. He took the naked body of Christ down from that cross, he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and he placed it in a new tomb in which no other body had been laid. Jerusalem was preparing for the Passover. And there was only so much that could be done because of the restrictions of the law. And the normal preparation of the body had to wait until the Sabbath was complete. At the end of the most horrid day in the history of all creation, the day in which the Son of God was condemned and murdered by those he had come to save, we closed our time with the lifeless body of Jesus lying motionless in a tomb. The events we've spoken of today are factual. They're history. Even those who hated Jesus and conspired to put him to death could not refute the testimony of Scripture concerning his death. My hope this morning is that you have already considered these events and that you have, in light of them, put your faith in the redeeming work of Jesus. Perhaps so you haven't. If that's you, I challenge you to read the gospel accounts for yourself. If Jesus simply made a deadly political miscalculation and ended up on the wrong side of Rome, then dismiss him and continue your search for a better Savior. If, on the other hand, what you hear in the Gospels is a story of a loving, merciful God who bore your sin, who suffered the just wrath of God that you deserved, who conquered death and invites you to live an abundant life with him, then I encourage you to respond by turning to him in faith and along with the Roman centurion declare, this man is surely the son of God. We sing another hymn that sums up today's message so well, and I would like to read it to you. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. This, the power of the cross, 
Christ became sin for us. He took the blame or the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead or raised to life, finished is the victory cry. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Amen.